Well, hello. How's it going, guys? So good to see you all. So good to be here in person. Second week of in-person church. It's just wonderful, isn't it? I can't wait for when we can sing again. Uh, and if you're tuning on the live stream, where's the camera? Uh, love you, miss you, and we can't wait for you to come and join us. This is something special, what we're doing right now, isn't it? Uh, let me pray, and we'll get into it. Father God, thank you so much that we can come and hear from you. That's what we most need, and it's what's going to be best for us. We're so thankful for Jesus. His name is the name above every name. We pray tonight that you would help us think well about our motives for work and hear what you have to say from your word. Amen. I want to tell you about my first job that I ever did, my first proper job. Uh, I got a job working at Coles, stacking shelves, and it was great. I worked, uh, this was about 16, and I worked a couple of nights a week, maybe on the weekend, every now and then. And I just, I, I loved it. I went along, I worked, and I worked hard because I really wanted to save up to get a car, right? 16-year-old, a car equals freedom. No, no more having to borrow your parents' car and ask them if you can go and what time you have to be back. I just, I really wanted to get a car. And so I worked hard for a couple of years, and then when I turned eight, or I was not quite 18, in year 12, I ended up getting the best car ever. It was a Mitsubishi Mirage. There's a photo here. Uh, this isn't actually my car. I couldn't even find a photo of it. It was silver, but it was similar. It had a body kit. It had a cannon on the back, a spoiler. It was absolutely gutless. But it had a subwoofer taking up two-thirds of the boot. I, like, I couldn't fit anything in my boot, but man, the sound system was cranking. It was, it was really good. Now... There are good motivations to work, but there are also bad ones, aren't there? I'll let you guys be the judge of 16-year-old Ben's motivation to go and get a job. Um, wonder what your motivation was. Turn to the person next to you just briefly and say, what, what was your motivation for your first job? What inspired you to go out and get a job? Just for 10 seconds, turn to the person next to you. All right, all right, come back in. Uh, I'm keen to hear some of those afterwards, keen to hear what your motivation was for your first job. Now, if you do the math, it ends up being about 100,000 hours that you're going to spend over your life working. 50 hours a week for 50 years. 100,000 hours. That's about half of the waking time of your whole life. You'll spend working. That's what the average person does. And the question I want to ask today is, what's your motivation to work? Not so much what are you going to do, because you know, jobs change, careers change. That all, that, you know, most people go through a few, three or four different jobs in a lifetime. But why? What's going to mo what motivates you when you get up in the morning, when your alarm clock goes off? What's going to get you out of bed? And I don't mean work here in the kind of strict sense of paid vocation. I mean the things that you give your time and your energy to. And so your work might be... Uh, might be learning, it might be going to school or university, your work might be parenting or caring for others. What, what's your motivation to do those things? See, that's, what, that's the question we're going to kind of look at in Ecclesiastes 4, but let's do a quick recap of where we've been so far. 
See, in chapter 1, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he introduced us to the main theme of the book, that our lives are like a breath, that death puts an end to our quest for significance, for, for lasting gain. The word he uses there for that breath, it's havel, the Hebrew word, and it kind of means, um, it means it, like some translations put it as futile or meaningless, but I think better than that is this kind of idea of a vapor. I've been trying to get out and go for some runs in the morning, and without the gym, I was pretty cold through winter. And you know, running around Centennial Park, and you, you breathe out in the morning, and it's that, that vapor that sits in the air, but it's only there for a few seconds, isn't it? And then it's gone. You kind of you try and grab it, it's gone, it doesn't last. And the preacher says, That's what our lives are like. They're fleeting, here one moment, and gone the next. And in chapter 2, we saw that death doesn't just make our lives fleeting, but it makes anything that we try and pursue for lasting pleasure or satisfaction fleeting as well, because whatever we give our lives to is going to come to an end, because we're going to come to an end. And, and last week, Josh took us through the seasons of life, and we saw that God made the seasons. Actually, all the things that happen in life are purposeful. We're not random, going through just random existence. Our lives have meaning and purpose because God made them. But we also saw, didn't we, we're not in control of our lives. We might be the main character, but we're definitely not the author of the story. And we saw that God's put eternity on our hearts so that we want to live for something more than just ourselves. And Josh encouraged us, didn't he, if you know Jesus, if you trust him as your king, then you, there is a work that you can give yourself to that will go on into eternity. The work of the Lord, sharing the gospel, building each other up to trust and love Jesus more. Because people actually have an eternity waiting for them. And so there's a work that will go on forever. But where does that leave us if you're a teacher or an accountant or you work in retail or hospitality or healthcare or you're learning or you're a student? See, is, is it just that if you're a Christian that you... Uh, go and you try and look for opportunities to share Jesus. And, and, and when you're there, you try and earn an income so you can give to kingdom work at church or in other places. Is that all my motivation for work? I think there's more to be said about why we work as Christians, isn't there? And there are a bunch of reasons that the New Testament gives us to work in the Old Testament, but we're going to look at just one from Ecclesiastes 4. We're going to see that it's better to live for we than just for me. We're going to see that your work is actually an opportunity to love and serve others. That just thinking of yourself and without any cost of what it's going to cost others, it actually doesn't lead us to joy and happiness. That's where we're going. So first we're going to see two wrong motivations for work. The first one that we see in the passage is oppression. Pick it up with me. If you haven't got a Bible, there's some, some pew Bibles on the things. Have one with you. Let's, let's read it together. Um, pick it up with me in verse 1. The preacher says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. See, up until this point, the preachers just talked about evil in a, a general sense, but here he starts to get specific. He's talking about oppression. And there's heaps the Bible has to say about oppression. 
The, the prophets speak out and they, 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 you know, God's people cry out, think of Moses and the Israelites in Egypt, and God hears them in their oppression. Or the, the prophets also speak about the evil of God's people oppressing others. Or the Psalms, they speak about God, he cares for the oppressed and he's going to deliver them. But here we just kind of get this statement about the evil of oppression, don't we? The preacher here just wants us to feel the weight of the evil of oppression in our world. Do you, do you feel it? Let me, try, let me try and help you to feel it. See, right now there are 150 million kids across our world who are in slave labor, forced labor. There's more than 40 million adult slaves today as well. That's one in every 200 people. That's far more than at any other point in history. We think we're getting better at this. We are getting worse. They're in forced labor. They're sexually exploited. They're trafficked. They're forced into marriage against their own will. And it's not just that oppression's on this big global scale. It, it happens in homes as well. I was reading during the, the week about a toddler in Birmingham. Her name was Christina, and she unfortunately passed away of septic shock. Her, her mum, as a punishment, put her under scalding hot water in the shower, and then for two weeks afterwards, didn't go and get any medical advice, and her daughter passed away. Like, you hear that, like, there's tingles going down my spine. Oppression is evil. A parent oppressing and being evil towards their child, that is one of the worst things that you could have in the world. To, it's, we can't dwell on it. We'll do anything we can to kind of lighten the mood, to think about something else. But oppression is a reality that is evil in our world. And, and the preacher says, such evil, such suffering, it would better not even to have been. He highlights the evil of oppression. And I want to give us two observations on oppression and then help us think about oppression in our own lives. The first one, oppression is such a great evil because it denies our humanness. See, each of us, Genesis 2 says, is made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect, worthy of value and honor, because of the God in whose image we are made in. See, the, the WHO Human Rights Declaration, it's a nice list of things, but it's kind of arbitrary, unless it's based in the God who made us as humans and who made us of worthy of value and respect. Our culture is moving away from an understanding of what it is to have dignity and respect as humans made in the image of God. We need to remember that as God's people. So you notice in this passage the suffering of both the oppressed and the oppressor. So he says there's no one, he says in verse 1 there, on the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. See, I take it even the oppressor, even though they have power, there's no one to comfort them. There's something that is less than human to either be oppressed or to oppress someone else. Because we were made as humans for, to encourage each other, to build each other up. And, and there's no one to comfort the one who oppresses others. It's why throughout human history, the church has always worked to support the poor, the vulnerable, to, to care and protect for those in need, the orphan, the widow, the sick. Oppression is a great evil because it kind of it denies our humanness. The second second observation, oppression won't go unnoticed by God. See, come back just to chapter three, verse seventeen with me. The preacher's just kind of talked about this um, just before. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, 
For there is a time for every matter and for every work. So there's a day coming when God will hold all evil to account. All oppression is seen by God. Nothing is hidden. See, if, if you've ever been oppressed, if you've suffered evil from someone else, God knows about it. He sees that. He cares for you. He loves you deeply. And he's going to do something about it. There is a day of judgment coming. And so if you've been oppressed, you can hold on to that truth and take comfort in it. But if you've ever oppressed someone else, you ought to read this and tremble. There is no space for oppressing others because it won't go unnoticed by God. There's two observations on oppression and the evil that it is. And I want to ask us, what does it mean for our motivations? See, while you can love and serve God in just about any job, right? There's no such thing as a sacred, a holy job. Whatever your work that you're doing, you can love and serve God in it. But there are some jobs that you can't. If you work in the gambling industry, if you work for companies that um, use forced labor in part of their, their supply chain, if you, uh, you know, those people that call up old people and get them to buy insurance that they don't need because they don't quite understand it, if, you, if you're in any of those, you're part of an oppressive system. You're part of oppressing the vulnerable in the world. And the Christian motive for work should flow from a desire to love others and to encourage them, to build them up, not to oppress them and exploit them. Or what about while you're at work? If you're, if you're a boss or you've got kind of manager responsibilities, are you aware of the power imbalance that you have when you talk to people who are underneath you? Or if you're at work and you've got colleagues, do you try and tear them down in order to make yourself look good? We ought not to be like that if we're Christian because we are motivated by not oppression to work. See, it's this idea of living for we, not me. And, and, if, and if you start to get this, it'll change not just how you work but how you spend your money that you get from work. See, if I'm living for me, what am I going to be concerned about? That I get the lowest price, the cheapest price, and it's the most convenient for me, right? That's what living for me is all about. But if I start living for we, if I start living for others, I'll actually care about more than just the cheapest price and the most convenient. I'll want to buy from companies that don't exploit and oppress others. See, Baptist World Aid, they just released their uh, ethical fashion guide for 2021. And you can see that only 20% of companies in Australia, fashion like clothing brands, got an A. There are Australian companies, there are stacks of them in Australia who produce their product overseas and sell it in Australia, and they don't pay their workers a fair wage, a living wage. They don't provide humane working conditions. They're not transparent in their supply chain. And they do all of this so that they can get a higher profit margin. They oppress and exploit workers in order to earn more. And for me, it, this isn't something you can just change overnight, that I you know, suddenly don't buy from anyone who oppresses anyone. That could be a, a full-time job, thinking about um, exploring and researching companies and what they do. But for me, the mindset was I had to change from thinking that cheapest is best to thinking actually ethically made and not, not oppressing someone. That's actually what's best. And there was this mindset that I had to go through. And I know lots of you here are students. I'm a student too. And it costs more to buy things from companies that don't oppress their workers. And so you can't do everything all at once. But it might mean you think about what jeans you're going to get next. 
that what company it is. You might think about where you're gonna, what coffee beans you're going to buy. The Baptist World Aid, that's a helpful place to start. I recommend you can Google it, download it, have a read. Check out if your favorite company is doing okay. So that's the first wrong motive for work, oppression. The second one I want to look at from Ecclesiastes 4 is envy. See it there with me in verse 4. It says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Isn't that interesting? Toil and all skill in work, they flow out of envy. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Isn't that a bit weird? See, I would have thought all skill in work is good, right? You want to be good at your job. But the preacher says, no, it depends on your heart what's making you skilled in your job. See, envy, it can be defined as this feeling of insufficiency, this lack. But it's not just this thing that I feel on my own. It comes out when I look at what someone else has and I don't have it. That's what makes it envy. You see what they have, their house, their job, their relationship, that new phone, and you think, I want it, my life is lacking. There's a, there's a famous Victor Hugo poem. Um, he talks about envy and greed. He, he personifies them as these two sisters. And, and, in the, and in the poem, the two sisters get the opportunity to wish for one thing that they could desire. Anything you want, you get it. But the catch is, whatever they get, the other sister gets a double portion of that thing. And envy can't deal with it, right? Because envy is all about comparing yourself with others. So no matter what she got, the other would get more. And so she sits in his silent for a long time, and then she says these words. They're on the screen. Envy at last, the silence broke, and smiling with malignant sneer, upon her dis- sister dear who stood in expectation by, ever implacable and cruel spoke, I would be blinded of one eye. There's envy for you. When you compare with the others, and it leads to lack and insufficiency, you'll do anything to get more, to get, to get by. See, the preacher here, he's exposing our hearts, isn't he? We think that living for me will lead to joy and contentment. But it, it just produces envy. And envy is, comparison is the thief of joy. It doesn't lead to joy. See, working for me will look like constantly thinking, what am I saving up for? Do you find yourself doing that? What do I not yet have, but I'm just working to, to get it, and that's all I can think about, and that's all that motivates me? That new house, that phone, that, that holiday that I want to go on, that new car. And when we do think about others, it's only to compare ourselves to them, so we feel superior when we've got more, or inferior if we've got less. But the problem here is that it's an endless cycle because there will always be someone who has more more than you. The person with the Toyota compares themselves to the person with the Ferrari, who compares themselves to the person with the yacht, who compares themselves to the person with the jet plane, I don't even know, the person with the space station, I don't know. There's always someone with a bit more than you, right? There's this old French bloke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he put it like this. This is really apt about what wealth actually is. He says, wealth is not an absolute. It is relative to desire. Every time we seek something we cannot afford, we grow poorer, whatever our resources. And every time we feel satisfied with what we have, we can be counted as rich, however little we may actually own. Isn't that deep? Wealth is not absolute. It's relative to desire. So the preacher says that working for me, working to have more than others, it's a striving after the wind. It's literally this, it's like herding the wind. That's what the expression means. 
It will either lead us to laziness or to manic busyness. Let's check them out. See with me in verse 5, laziness. The preacher says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Oh, that's a, <laughs> a graphic image, isn't it? It's poetic. It's designed to kind of emo- evoke some emotion in you. The lazy person who does nothing ends up with nothing to eat but themselves. And I was thinking, how does envy lead to laziness? How does that work? And I think for us, we see it in the kind of culture of working to live, which I think is particularly a danger for us here in this little slice of paradise in Maroubra. We've got beautiful beaches, we've got everything around us that we could ever want. And, and so what it looks like is the person that so loves their life that work becomes an absolute drudgery. They get in and try and get out as soon as possible. They just go and do the minimum at work. And they're lazy because work's just this thing to to get through. See, for the lazy person, there's always an excuse. It's not technically in my job description, or I'll leave that for someone else, or I've had a hard week, I deserve an extra break. Or that convo was going to cost me emotionally, so I'm going to just put that off and and, and not, not do that. See, if this is you, if you found yourself slipping into this motive of kind of laziness at work because you are envious of the kind of lifestyle that you have outside of work, you need to rethink your motives. See, you aren't just to work to do the bare minimum and get paid just for yourself. In the New Testament, Titus chapter 2 um, comments on this and on the way we ought to work. It says, it's going to come up on the screen, it says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Now, I don't think that bond servants is necessarily a correlation to workers today, um, but I think the principle there is one that, one that stands. Work so that you can adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Or as the NIV says it, NIV says, work so that you can make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. That's, there's a reason to go to work. If you're a Christian, you can't just show up at work working for yourself, working for me to get a paycheck. See, if people at your workplace think that you're argumentative or they think that you're, you know, stealing by being lazy on on company time, you'll actually make God look worse. Because they'll say, if that's what Christians are like, I don't want to be one. I don't want to be friends with one. I have no interest in Christianity. But if you show up to work and you work hard, if you care about others, if you're compassionate and not starting fights but seeking to care and love people at work, you'll make Jesus look beautiful. People will think, I don't know much about Christianity, but gee, that that girl at work is really kind. Gee, she shows up and she works hard, she doesn't slack off, and she's passionate about Jesus. Maybe I should check out her church, maybe I should ask her about her faith. You'll make Jesus look beautiful. See, that's, that's the first one. Working for me can lead to this kind of envy that leads us to be lazy at work because we're so concerned about other things. But it can also lead to manic busyness. See, pick it up with me in verse 7. He says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity 
and an unhappy business. See, it's the picture of the person who's got no meaningful relationships because they never stop working to spend time with anyone. And the money they make doesn't actually make them happy. They could go on holidays anywhere in the whole world, but they have no one to take with them because they've got no friends and no family. And they don't even ask the question, what am I toiling for? What am I depriving myself for? See, don't buy the lie that your work will bring you happiness. Don't buy that lie. Lots of us are starting out in our careers of work, and we've got 100,000 hours ahead of us. See, capitalism is built on advertisers telling you that your life is missing something, and if you just got that thing, your life would be so much better. Happiness is always around the corner. See, envy, it pushes us to hustle, to kind of long for this life that's just ahead, and we, we never stop and enjoy the life we have. Envy stops us from being, from being thankful to God for the gifts and the relationships that he's given us in our lives and instead always keeps us wanting more. Envy promises to deliver happiness, but it never actually does. It'll always not deliver on that promise. John Steinbeck, the American writer, he was you know, reflecting on envy and busyness and work. He, he wrote these words in his novel, East of Eden. He said, when a man comes to die, no matter what his talents and influence and genius, if he dies unloved, his life must be a failure to him and his dying a cold horror. There's some words on what manic busyness leads to. But living for me seems like such a great idea, doesn't it? I love me. I love me. I want me to be happy. But the problem is the more you chase after living for your own pleasures and success and satisfaction, the more it just kind of slips through your fingers. It doesn't lead to joy in God's world. It leads to oppression, envy, laziness, and manic busyness. See, you could say to live for me is actually to hate my neighbor and to hate myself. It doesn't actually lead to joy. See the words of the preacher in verse 6. He says, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Quietness here, he doesn't mean not talking, being silent, but he means it's a life of peace, a life of tranquility. It's the, the man in Psalm 1, the blessed person who's next to the stream, which is God's word. It's, it's this middle ground between laziness and manic busyness. It's realizing that life is a gift to be thankful for, not a place to try and seek gain and just kind of hoard stuff for yourself. It's taking the time to slow down and appreciate the good gifts that God has given you and to share them with others. Rather than two handfuls of toil, better is one hand, another hand with which you can give to others. And so how, how what we think about work? Well, the right motivation for work then, this is point two, the next, this point and the third one are a lot shorter, the, the point is that the preacher has some simple but wise advice about the right motivation for work. He says that life is better lived when we don't just live for ourselves, but we live for others. When we live for we, not me. And we see it, don't we, in verse 9 to 12. He gives us these kind of pithy statements. See verse 9? He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. It's just kind of, you'll actually be able to achieve more with others and you'll have someone to share it with. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. 
this idea of supporting each other, that you can carry each other's burdens, lift each other up, that life is um, better when we're dependent, interdependent on others. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That actually in community, you'll get something that is lacking that you can't just, have, that you can't just do on your own. There's something about community. We're not, we're not an island. We need each other. Or verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, in community, you can protect each other. You can have each other's backs. You can care for each other. You don't have to just go through things on your own, caring about yourself. Um, these verses are often read out at weddings. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this is particularly talking about a wedding, but a marriage actually is a good illustration of um, a life lived for we, not me. The promises that you make to have their needs ahead of your own, to take care of them ahead of yourself in sickness and in, and in health, if for better or worse, richer or poorer. There's a good example of living for we, not me. David Gibson, reflecting on these verses, he says this. He says, This is proverbial wisdom in poetic form. A general principle that life lived in community and mutual interdependence is better all around for everyone. We, not me, is always going to be better for me than only me. This is how God designed us to flourish. See, we, not me, is always going to be better for, for me than only me. There's the principle from Ecclesiastes 4. And we see it in verse 13 to 16, don't we? He, the preacher kind of expands on this, this wisdom of living in community, of living for we, as being able to take advice from others. See, verse 13, he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. See, better to be a poor kid than a rich king with it all if you don't know how to take advice from others. To live for we is to invite others in, to encourage feedback, to care what others think, to, to seek out their advice and, and do life together. That's the principle of living for we. And I think this is the, this is the message right across the whole Bible, isn't it? That life is best lived in community. It's why we've missed being together so much over lockdown and why it's so good to gather together and share in each other's lives. Humans flourish when they care about not just themselves, but others. And it turns out that that's actually the way that we cultivate happiness and joy and peace and thankfulness is by living not just for ourselves, but for others. You could summarize living for me, as I said, as hating your neighbor and hating yourself. And to summarize Living for we, you could put it in Jesus' words in Mark 12. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what living for we is all about. But if you live in the real world, like me, you'll know that sometimes it's easier said than done to do this, isn't it? People can be so frustrating. At work, they can be selfish and manipulative and speak about you behind your back. People can be really hurtful to us. How can you possibly live this way for we, not me, when no one else seems to be doing it? Well, that's my third point, because Jesus lived for we, not me. See, Jesus always loved God and loved his neighbor. He came to earth in, in, as God in human form and lived the perfect human life. See, come with me to our New Testament reading in Philippians 2. Flip over, flip over there. 
Pick it up with me in verse 3. Paul says, this is the kind of attitude they're to have. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, this is Paul's way of describing living for we, isn't it? Put others' interests ahead of your own. See what he says in verse 5? He says, have this mind among yourselves, this, this mind of humility, of, of others' interests, of counting them as more significant. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he says, you've already got it. It's already yours in Christ Jesus. So have it, take it up, live it out. And then he goes on in verses 6 to 8 to give us the ultimate example of humility. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul goes on to then outline the exaltation of Jesus. He's given the name above all names. Every knee will bow before him. But I want us to see two things. I want us to see, first, the necessity of what Christ did, and secondly, how that enables us to live for we. So the necessity, each of us hasn't lived for we. Each of us has lived for me, not we. Back in chapter Ecclesiastes 3.17, we saw that God will judge all evil. And we've actually all done evil things. None of us is perfect. And, and in doing so, we've actually rejected the most important other that there is, God. And, and Christ came to, to earth and he took the punishment that we deserve for our rejection of God by taking on humanity and dying in our place so that we could come into right relationship with the God of the universe. Friends, that's the gospel. In Christ, we have been forgiven. In Christ, we have been cleaned and, and, and made clean and, and been renewed. In Christ, we've got new hearts now. In Christ, we now want to live for God and love others not just to live for ourselves. We're not perfect. That won't come until the new creation. But if you're in Christ, real change has occurred in your heart. See, what is it that's going to enable you to live for we, not me? It's the gospel. It's, it's the work of Christ in your life. See, what did Jesus do? He didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. It was his. He's God. He deserved equality with God, but he gives it up. He doesn't cling on to it. He doesn't demand his rights. He doesn't hold on to it as the most important. No, what does he do? He makes himself nothing in love for us. See, in Jesus, we see the very heart of God, who he is at his core. He's a giving, loving, self-giving of himself kind of a God. He cares for us. And so we... We don't need to live for ourselves anymore because the God of the universe died for us. He's for us. See, it means I don't need to look out for my own interests because Christ looked out for my interests. He died for my sin, my biggest need. I don't need to hoard my money so that I can find security in my wealth because in Christ, my eternity is secure. He's my treasure now, and so I'm free to be generous. I don't need to work at a manic pace to find my joy in, in a career and a job and earning more money and having more stuff because in Christ, I've got everything I need. There is nothing safer than knowing you are loved by the God of the universe. 
See, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 4 is proved true a thousand times over. Jesus lived for we, not for himself. And he calls us as his disciples to follow him, to live for others, to serve them, to love our neighbor. See, Ecclesiastes 4 teaches us that, teaches us that oppression, envy, laziness, manic busyness, none of these ways of working for me actually lead to joy. But the path of loving our neighbor, of working for we, of living for others, that's a path towards contentment and joy and peace. And so when your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, no matter what your job is, no matter what you're going to get up and do tomorrow, go and do it to love and serve others. Go and work for we, not me, knowing that the God of the universe died for you and he loves you and he cares so much about you and what you do. See, that's the mind that Paul says, have that mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When you look at what Jesus has done, that'll enable you to go out and live for others, not for yourself. How about I pray that we do that? Father God, we're so thankful for Jesus. He always loved you and loved others. And in him we're now free. We're so secure and safe in his love that we can be unleashed to go and love others too. I pray that you would help us to guard our hearts from wrong motives for work. Help us not to be envious. Help us not to oppress others in our work. But help us to seek to live for others Live for we, not me. Fuel us up this week to go out and love and serve others, no matter what our work is, remembering what Jesus has done for us. Amen.